y'all. I'm really excited to be bringing you episode 32 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. This episode was such a treat for me. It is part of the Salvadoran poetry series. I've been doing this season. In this interview, I spoke with Christopher Soto about their new book of poetry, Diaries of a Terrorist. They discuss how the literary establishment ignores Salvadoran poetry. Soto also shares why they use the we pronoun in their poetry and their journey to abolition. It was an amazing experience to talk to another Salvi abolitionist. I'm really happy to be able to share this with you all. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do so is to become a patron. If you go on patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona, you can join a monthly subscription for $3, 5 or $10 a month. Really, whatever you give is really, really, really appreciated by me. Get access to the lit reviews, which are book club style chats that I do with other women of color. You also get early access to episodes like these. It's ultimately just a way to make the work that I do sustainable so that I can continue putting out podcast episodes. Another completely free way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you to the listener who gave Radio Cochimona a five-star rating on Spotify. I really take notice when anybody leaves a rating or review. So please, please, please continue doing that. I hope that you all enjoy this episode. Hello, Cochimbonas. Today, I am very excited to have poet Christopher Soto here today to talk about their new book of poems, Diaries of a Terrorist. Christopher, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having me. You're the co-founder of UndocuPoets. What made you start that poetry collective? So UndocuPoets was started while Javier Zamora and I were in grad school together at NYU. And we had realized that there were systemic barriers for uh, preventing undocumented writers from participating in the literary landscape. So what that meant was that a lot of first book contests in the United States were saying that people couldn't apply for their contest unless they had proof of US citizenship. So Javier and I knew that that wasn't necessary and that prevented some of our best writers from having access to publishing and so we brought on Marcelo Hernandez Castillo and we began a petition demanding that these publishing contests change their regulations. A good handful of major contests did change their regulations although there are still some places where that is a requirement. Since the founding years, we've expanded the team. Javier and I have stepped back and Esther Lynn and Janine Joseph have joined our team to help us steward this program. That's really cool because now you and Javier Samora have these amazing texts out and I feel like you have this really tangible, amazing fruit 
of that labor? Yeah, I think it's okay to disclose now, but I was born in Los Angeles to a family that migrated from El Salvador. And Javier Zamora was born in El Salvador and then migrated to the United States. So when we started organizing, we had different citizenship status. And we were a bit ambiguous about that when our campaign was first starting, as I remember it, for safety reasons. Because a lot of people that we were talking to, some people were out as undocumented, some people were not out as undocumented. So we identified as a mixed status collective. And then we weren't really public in our interviews about, you know, who was born in what place or who had what particular status, because it felt really risky that the work that we were doing at that time, we didn't have a lot of publications. We didn't have a lot of institutional support. You know, we were just students at NYU and we weren't really like in the public eye or lauded by the literary community or had access to journalists or any of these other things that in one extent or another, sometimes make you feel a little bit safe. So we started as a mixed status collective. So it did benefit a lot of writers. That makes sense. I wonder if is the feeling different now that there has been for years this undocumented and unafraid campaign or has Trump and just the realities of the border reversed some of that progress? I mean, I there's a lot of different people with a lot of different tactics and a lot of different mm-hmm. feelings. So I don't want to speak about like how other people relate to coming out with their status or not, or necessarily how that might feel in relationship to the political climate, because there's always so much risk. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Biden in particular is not necessarily a safe haven for people in relationship to migration or justice-based issues. But what I can say is that, as I remember the conversations when we first started years ago, being a mixed status collective and, and a little bit ambiguous about some of our narratives felt safer to us then. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Your debut poetry collection demands abolition and the end of Caging humans. How did you arrive at this politics? It was also in New York. New York was really formative for me. Hmm. I grew up in Southern California outside of Los Angeles and then moved to Long Beach for undergrad. And so I feel like up until my undergrad education, I was really talking to a lot of Inland Empire, Los Angeles writers. And then after my undergrad, I moved up to San Francisco for a short time and I started to get to know some Bay Area writers. I have really deep roots in the California literary community and scene my whole life has been out here. But when I went to grad school in New York, everything opened up for me. NYU's creative writing program felt like it was the hub of literary life and publishing, people sometimes will distinguish little P poetry and capital P poetry. And I think by capital B poetry, they just mean people with access to literary institutions and money that supports literary arts. And so NYU was my first exposure to even knowing that capital P poetry existed. But going to New York, yeah, it influenced my relationship to literary craft and my the reach of my work. And that in New York City is also where I began to really explore my queer identity, my non-binary trans identity, 
and abolitionist politics. My first year in New York, I met a group of queer of color activists who were also poets. So this was mind blowing to me that I could talk to queer and trans people of color who were also activist poets. I was like, I'm never leaving this city. It was phenomenal. And then we ended up having a whole friend group and a whole statewide, regional, national network of queer and trans people of color who were activists. And all of these activists, a lot of them surrounded at that time the Miss Major J. Tool building in New York City, which is where the Audre Lorde project was, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, Streetwise and Safe. And we would go and we would march together for various issues. And that's also around the time of when Black Lives Matter protests were starting, the initial ones. And a lot of these queer and trans activists of color were at the forefront of abolitionist thought. And I remember thinking they were ludicrous. Like at first, you know, just being surrounded by these communities and be like, there's no way that you're actually trying to move to a world beyond prisons and policing. This is a decade ago. And slowly and surely they showed me what text I should be reading. And I entered in dialogues and conversations. And then I started really to understand the impact that policing had in my life as a Central American person. And then once I started to grasp with the ways that I had been impacted by policing as a Central American person in Los Angeles, which operates one of the largest prison systems in the world, then I began to envision or learn how to envision alternative responses and how the police are not necessary in really any aspect of my life. So... Moving back to LA, have you acquainted yourself with the abolitionists of LA? Because I think there is like a fierce hub, right? Yeah, there there definitely is. The thing is, I did not necessarily always have access to the same spaces mm. that I do now. Mm-hmm. So now, after having lived in New York, it's like I know how to access writers and poets and activist networks. And before when I was living in L.A., I was just like spray painting the wash and getting stoned and looking at the stars. Right now. Yeah. Now it's a little bit of a little bit of both, maybe too much work and I need more stargazing. But I think it's because of the network that I built in New York that I was able to come back home to L.A. and get plugged into a lot of those communities that are like-minded Is that here. because the Inland Empire is kind of more suburban, that you were kind of not as tuned in to the LA organizing, or is it something else? Mm, well, no, because, so I identify as the second generation that's been pushed okay. out of LA proper. <laughs> My family was in uh, LA and then moved to Inland Empire for 2000. And then similarly, I returned to LA and then I moved Again, right now, I don't live in L.A. proper. I moved outside of L.A. proper last year, Mm -hmm. again, for cheap housing. So I've always been of L.A. and not of L.A. In the same way that I feel like I'm always of Latinidad, but I'm never of Latinidad. I'm always of trans and gender non-conforming spaces, but I'm not of trans and Mm -hmm. gender non-conforming spaces. I know all of those can be very impact. (laughs) But, But so I think... With LA, like in those years, I was also like experiencing domestic violence and didn't always have stable housing. And so I had access to like some cool arts places. 
I always talk about this one like funk music venue, for example, in downtown mm. LA called The Smell. And like, they would have, it was really great. Like on Sunday, on Sundays, they would have punk shows for $5 where you would get your hair cut for free. The bands would do this and they'd serve you like pancakes and orange juice. I would remember marching with my family for migrant justice in those years, SB 1070, oh, yes. I believe. In Arizona, yeah. in Arizona there was big marches mm. against that in LA. That's I remember cool. in those years, there was also mm -hmm. um, Occupy that was happening. There was... Oh, so I remember I would march with friends and I would march with family and I'd be at these punk shows and I would go to slam poetry events at, uh, I was on a slam poetry team and I'd go to events at the Poetry Lounge in Pomona or a Mike and Dim Lights in Pomona, the Poetry Lounge in LA. So I was tied into activists and arts circles, but it wasn't always thought of as like the capital P poetry that we returned to. I think because of the way that arts and activist circles are kind of sidelined. And maybe that's also how we talk, how we were just mentioning not exactly fitting in. I think LA is another part of like not fitting in. So if you're like an LA writer, you're kind of like the ugly to sister, who? you know, to, oh. to New York City. And, and that's kind of how I feel about a lot of my identities. It's like, I live in the ugly sister city. I have the ugly sister relationship to Latinidad and I have the ugly sister relationship to, uh, you know, queer and transness as well. Like I'm always just right outside of being in. <laughs> I, I really relate to that. I feel like that's what a lot of Salvadorans experience in one way or another. <laughs> yeah. In Transgender Cyborgs Attack, you write, our gender is against the law, but so is your God. Jesus was trans. What did you mean by that? I think about Jesus as someone who's crucified by the Roman state and persecuted by the Roman state and lived outside of the confines of power. And for me, if we look at all of the anti-trans bills and legislation that's been happening in the United States, to be trans and gender nonconforming is to exist yeah. outside of state power and to constantly be at the helm of how it wants to treat or persecute your life. And so... I was thinking about that, about how this person, Jesus, gets used in so many ways mm. to justify state violence when, when I don't see how that relationship or reading to Jesus yeah. is appropriate. I all. love that. I love the framing of his life as ultimately being about state violence. When you think about it, that is really what happened. But as you say, that's definitely not how contemporary Christians frame Jesus' life. I also think about, I grew up Catholic, and I yeah. think about religion in relationship to the role that the Catholic Church played in the Salvadorian Civil War. Like the fact that Monsignor Romero was killed, and then that helped spark the Salvadorian Civil War, which mm -hmm. was largely about class-based issues. Mm -hmm. And so as I relate to the Catholic Church for me, it has always had at least this mythology of activism or this mythology of standing in solidarity with marginalized and working people. And so I think that's what kind of makes me feel like I have authority to say some of these things mm -hmm. is because I don't identify as Christian or Catholic anymore, but I really do 
in my heart believe that if anything, that Catholic Church is or should be one of working class, queer, trans, houseless, marginalized people. It's kind of a hard one, though, because the Catholic Church has not been that. No. <laughs> I'm not, listen, I'm not going to argue with you there. That's, <laughs> that's why I'm not in it anymore. <laughs> I mean, I am a little curious about liberation theologists because I know they did have a role in political education and like fomenting support for the Gidea resistance in the Salvador. Like Ignacio it's just you Martin. can't tell that story without talking about colonialism. Yeah, like Ignacio Martin Barro, who had writings for liberation theology, is a Jesuit Catholic priest who was using yeah. essentially like surveys and data in order to, <laughs> and at that time, like data information and surveys were like radical, just being able to tell, it still kind of is in the context of contemporary El Salvador. Yeah. Being able to tell opinions and truth. I am particularly disinterested in, I think, the hero myth in the sense that a lot of times they'll be like, here's a person from a marginalized background and look at them succeed. And so in my poetry book, it kind of is like this juxtaposition where my poetry book is talking about state violence enacted against you know, Central American communities in Los Angeles, etc. But because it's published off of a prestigious press and I went to NYU and I have some awards and stuff, then I simultaneously... Some awards and stuff, casual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then I simultaneously get lauded as an example of, like, you can overcome these hardships and you too can be hero myth, token, model of, like, why these systems of repression are not real and you can actually overcome them. So I'm disinterested in highlighting my name or accomplishments or whatever in relationship to the work. And I'm also disinterested in highlighting singular individuals as like heroes for collective struggles. So, I mean, you think about hero myths in the United States, you're like, all right, all of Black liberation is because of Martin Luther King Jr. And that's not that's not how a movement is formed. That's not how change is formed. It takes so many people doing so many different types of work. And so by using the we pronoun, I wanted to honor the fact that I'm not the first one to talk about abolition. I'm not the last one to talk about abolition. I'm not the smartest one to talk about abolition. I'm not the most creative one to talk about abolition. I'm not interested in representing the movement. And I don't think that any one of us is possible of it. But what I do want to say through the we pronoun is that like there are a shit ton of us and a lot of us have had variations of these kind of experiences. A lot of us have variations of these kind of thoughts and we're building and we're working together to say fuck the police. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. That's so inspiring. So talking about inspiring, poetry actually has long inspired political revolution in El Salvador and among the diaspora, Roque Dalton, et cetera, et cetera. 
What do you hope that this collection inspires amongst the Salvadoran diaspora? Yeah, it's so, I love that you talk, brought Roque Dalton into the conversation. I'm really freaking excited because I'm writing a foreword for, they're going to be reissuing a collection of his poems, Seven Stories Press in 2023. Oh, cool. And so that makes me wildly happy to be in conversation with his work. But I think in terms of inspiring the diaspora, for me, I don't know. The church is coming up so much this morning, but I don't. <laughs> I don't want to is like evangelize, like the right word. It's weird because it's like I'm interested in producing propaganda, and I have such strong yeah. thoughts about politics, and I want to get my feelings and everything out there. But I think when people meet me, I'm usually laughing and wanting to like run into the beach, and <laughs> you know, and I'm not. I just want to play. And I think I bring that up to say that, like, I'm interested in producing art. I'm interested in producing propaganda. I want it to have the widest reach out there. But simultaneously, I'm interested in, like, listening to people. Mm-hmm. I trust that as they see my life, how I live it, the work that I produce, and the life that I live, that people will want to engage with the work on their own accord as opposed to me being like this is the only way that there is to be able to live the world and I think because of that relationship to living and producing activist material I feel like I haven't necessarily considered direct impact in particular communities I think also because with poetry and literary arts it's so hard to trace like what the impact is yeah And then the last thing I'll say here is that I think also part of it has to deal with the fact that maybe definitely this is something I have to work through on my own, is that I do feel like almost illegible in a sense. Hmm. And the same way that I'm like Central American and non-binary identity or even living in poetry, I think sometimes I feel like I belong a little to every community Hmm. and not necessarily directly to any community. And so I'm like, will the diaspora even care? I think they do, yeah. And that's why I'm interviewing you right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's the same thing with, like, queers. I'm like, will the queers even care? Like, will the diaspora even care? Will LA even care? Because it feels like, I don't, mm, it feels, it feels like. Is there something about this moment that's making you feel that way? No, I think. Now I'm in therapy session. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to get to the bottom of this for you. (laughs) I think this is actually like a very, I feel like I have the parentheses around this interview because we're tying like this whole span, but I think it ties back to New York. And being at oh, fuck being, New York, honestly. No, 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 but in a good sense. In the oh, sense okay. that, like in the sense that, you know, at that time it wasn't legible. Mm-hmm. Abolitionist politics were not legible. Yeah. Growing up in Los yeah. Angeles and being Salvadorian, like I was called Mexican my whole life. Right. Like, <laughs> and then you know, and then you're like, I'm Salvadorian, and they're like, Oh, cool, is it in Oaxaca? Like and, Wait, this is an aside, but have you seen the show This Fool on Hulu? 
No. Oh my god, you need to watch it. It's hilarious. It's about Latinx communities in LA. And like the fir- the very first scene is like this guy that's trying to back up out of his driveway. And there's a group of guys racing cars, I think. Or like racing toy cars. And one of them is like, yeah, we're doing blacks versus Mexicans. And there's this guy that's like, dude, I already told you I'm Salvadorian. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Like, and then they're just like... Whatever, all sensitive. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you. I don't know. Are you also from LA? Are you from, I'm from the Bay, actually. So I don't know if it's the same, but there, like, there, there used to be tension. Like, you're not, you're, you weren't growing up in this area. It wasn't like, oh, okay, you're Salvadorian. It's like Mexicans would not be happy that you were Central yeah. American. There was yeah. a lot of tension. And so I think that's kind of the backbone of how I've grown up. And then also when I started identifying as non-binary, that was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the identities that I ran through were like non-binary, gender fluid, gender non-conforming, agender. We didn't coalesce around a singular word of non-binary. Mm-hmm. As I've gotten older, people have coalesced around the word non-binary. Abolition is a word that has entered the le- American lexicon to this yeah. extent where it's covered on CNN. Yeah. Like the idea of Central Americans being a population that exists in Los Angeles is something that's there. Mm-hmm. So I think my heart still kind of feels in a way undecipherable because honestly, I've some parts has been kind of scary because as I've been writing, I've been exploring and understanding how to name experiences and thoughts along with the rest of the country and I think maybe now yeah it's more decipherable but my head still doesn't process that information yeah I think that abolition's having a big moment and I think that Salvadoran authors are having a big moment right now there's so many Salvadorans coming out with stuff I do feel like there is an improvement in terms of legibility from the public and I think that your book is a really important contribution to that yeah thank you thank you yeah, just to plug some of the other Salvadorian writers right now, Cynthia Guardado has a book that's Yeah, coming. I just inter- I interviewed here last week. Oh, perfect. So, yeah. Um, tell Javier to email me back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's busy. He's yeah, no, I see him and, on morning news. I'm like, okay, I guess that's why you didn't email me back, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Alex um, Leichen Regalado is another Salvadorian poet who has a book coming out this year. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a um, lot of Salvadorian poets. Yeah, um, it's like poetry um, in particular is having a moment, which I love. Yeah, and thank you so much for covering our work because a lot of the times, you know, for example, like I put out on Twitter, I was like, here are all of the Salvadorian poetry books that, you know, have come out yeah. this year. Is anyone going to cover them? And I had freelance writers in my inbox being like, I want to write about it. I want to write about it. And I had, you know, people asking me for interviews afterwards, but no one, no major media publication that I know of yet has, and I've worked with these freelance writers on sending out the pitches, has accepted and allowed us all to be in conversation with each other mm. and actually analyze and take in this moment, but like, here's what's going on with Salvadorian literature. Here's why it's going on. And here's why it's important to know about. And I just don't know how there's going back to New York because the whole literary industry is there. Like New York yeah. Times, the New Yorker, Paris Review, like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like, how can you not? how can you not see this as a moment and cover it? And it's not like, 
it's not like this is the only time that they've ignored like important moments in Chicano Latino literature. Mm-hmm. Like they also ignored um, undocu poets when mm-hmm. that was happening. And it's not like oh me just talking about my work. We could look over at like what Miriam Gurba was doing with Dignidad yeah. Literaria, New York Times, New Yorker, Paris Review. That was a huge moment in Chicano Latino literature. How are you not covering it? Yeah. There's no respect from a lot of these major New York institutions towards what's happening in our communities, in our life, in our arts. And we've been yelling about it. And I, I, I don't know what it looks like to turn the tables there. I know that is a hard one to try and convince people in power that this is worth reading. But that's why I encourage everyone who's listening to this right now to get your book of poems, to get the, the works that I'm featuring from other authors to show that there is interest in this. And I think also part of it, it feels to me because I've been arguing with these places for so long, like cultural shifts. Like mm-hmm. we still celebrate, we still celebrate when, you know, our token writers do get into these institutions and we're like, oh, look, we got one review mm-hmm. or, oh, look, we got half an article. Mm-hmm. And when do we say like, actually, New York Times is transphobic. Actually, New York Times is, and people have been saying this not to diminish anyone's work. Actually, New York Times is pro-cop. Like, yeah. actually, it's not really an honor to be mm. to be included yeah. in an institution yeah. who has been anti-trans, pro-cop, and ignored the most important literary movements in my community. Yeah. I, I don't think that's an honor anymore. Mm. And and I think there's other there's other more local, more small institutions, and there's also some badass reporters and journalists at larger institutions mm-hmm. um, that are like maybe it's I actually do like what LA Times is doing in literature. Mm, they cover a docupoets, they cover dignidad literaria, they are actually reviewing and talking about and platforming Latino authors. They have Latino, they've had historically Latino critics. So like I actually do I actually do fuck with some of their literary coverage. And that's a big institution. Yeah, that's good to know. Say fuck New York in conclusion. (laughs) Um, Well, Christopher, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. I know I've gone a little bit over the time. Um, What is something that's inspiring you lately? Inspiring me lately? I think, I think I feel happiest or most inspired when I'm reading. Like whenever I just like, because life has been so busy and whenever I just get to read and I just, I finish a book. I'm like, ah. um, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, yes, thank God. And, and so this last weekend, I finished that Roque Dalton title that I'm going to be um, writing the forward for. And then I also finally finished um, Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. And that was phenomenally written. Mm. And so I think that's what inspires me is just, you know, picking up a good book of literature and being like, oh my gosh, like more than being a writer, being able to be a reader, like, Mm. oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I love that. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I hope to have you back again to talk about your next projects and hope you have a great Friday. Thanks, I hope you have a good day too. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona is the best way to do so for $3, 5 or $10 a month. You get early access to episodes like these or exclusive access to the Lit Reviews, which are book club-style chats. Another amazing, super, super, super helpful way to support the podcast is to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leaving ratings and reviews really helps the podcast with visibility. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas! <laughs>